All right, Salt City. My name is Jordan Adams. Thanks for being here this morning. Hey, we're finishing up our series in the book of Acts, which is wild. We've been in this since the beginning of the semester in the fall. And I'm excited to get to, to finish it up with you this morning. And, and so I've been thinking this week not just about stuff that I'm seeing in Acts 27 and 28, um, which is where we're going today. And so if you would flip there with me, I'd love that. Um, but not only thinking about those two chapters, but thinking about themes that we've seen throughout this entire book. And, and one of the things that you can't help but notice when you're reading the book of Acts is just how intense Paul is. Like, that dude was crazy. We've seen him stoned, persecuted for his faith. Like, we've seen him, uh, yeah, get thrown out of a city and then walk back in, want to preach in front of riots. And now we're seeing him in the last kind of phase of his life moving towards Rome on this crazy journey that we'll unpack a little bit this morning. But one of the things that you can't help but notice about Paul is that he knew what he was living for that his life had a purpose. So I'm bad at small talk because I just like, I just don't like it, to be honest. I'll do it with you, you know, out of kindness if we have to. But I, and so sometimes when I get uncomfortable with small talk, I just start asking intense questions. And one of my favorite intense questions is, what's the purpose of your life? Yeah, yeah, I know. Like some of you have gotten this from me and you felt uncomfortable in that moment. Or, or like, what did God make you to do? What were you born to do? And typically people get a little bit uncomfortable at this moment because it is a little bit socially awkward, I am aware, but also I think because it exposes something in us. I think one of our greatest fears in life is getting to the end of life and looking back and not knowing what the point was. Not knowing what the meaning of our lives were, right? Like, my guess is that most of you in this room at some point in your life have done that exercise, whether it's reading a book or in school or whatever, where they're like, hey, think forward to your tombstone. Like, what, what will it say about you? What will be true of you at the end of your life? And then kind of work your way back and live in that way. And so I want to I talk this morning about what it means to have purpose as a Christian and not only that, but the way that we can actually live in that purpose. Because there's one thing to know the right answer to that, right? This is church, so the answer is like Jesus, right? But, but how do we bridge the gap between what we know to be true about what we should be living for and what's actually true in the way that we live day to day? And I actually want to point out that I think one of the primary ways that you can bridge that gap, that I see Paul bridging that gap, is with the perspective with which you view your life. So that changing your perspective actually changes your purpose. That the way that you think and what you believe to be true about the world actually will change your behavior day to day if you learn to tangibly believe it. And I think we see that in the Apostle Paul's life. I would argue to you that the reason why he was so impactful and influential is not just because of his giftings, although that is true, not just because of his discipline, although he had it. It's because of his perspective that he had on the world. And so I want to unpack today a few perspectives that we can have as Christians that if we truly get it, I think will change the way that we live. So the first perspective is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. So let's dig into this in, into the story a little bit. Acts 27, let's start in verse 13. So here's what's going on is, is Paul is on this mission towards Rome and Jesus has promised him that he will testify to the gospel in Rome, but also that trials and persecutions are coming there. 
And he's, he's been put on trial already, and he's appealed to Rome, and so he's on this long journey to Rome. So let's pick it up in verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. Gotta love the nautical language, the Northeaster, right? Sounds so intense. Verse 19, let's skip down to 19. And on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest laid upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Okay, so picture the situation that they're in, right? You're in a sailboat. So you can't really control this if the wind isn't doing what you want it to do. And they get caught up in the middle of like a gale force storm and they're just absently floating around at sea. And they get to the point where they're so desperate, they're so lost that they start chucking cargo overboard, stuff that they need for survival because their ship is almost sinking. There's waves crashing in onto the ship and they're trying to light it up, lighten it up so that it'll stay above water. And then watch what Paul does. Okay, picture being in the middle of that, and then Paul is going to stand up and give a speech and essentially just say, hey, everybody chill out, which is a weird thing to do, right? Listen to this, verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. What a gutsy thing to do. Right, Your ship is sinking. There's almost 300 other people on the ship who are freaking out, losing their minds, and chucking stuff overboard. And then Paul stands up and is like, hey, everybody relax. It's going to be fine. We're all going to live. How do you think they responded in that moment? Like, If I am on that ship, I am not super happy with the guy that's trying to stay positive. Right? That's annoying in this situation. But look at what happens. The rest of the story is crazy. We don't have time to get into all of it. But essentially, the summary is that they crash land on, a, on an island they're literally stranded on a desert island. The natives happen to be really friendly to them and start taking care of them. Paul builds a fire and a viper comes out and bites his hand and is hanging off of his hand and the, the locals see this and assume that he's going to die and they're watching him, waiting for him to swell up and die and then Paul just never does. And so they go from, oh, he must be a murderer to he must be a god and they declare Paul a god and then Paul finds this dude that has dysentery and heals him and then they're like, oh, he really is a god. And then they start bringing all of these sick and hurting people to Paul. And he heals essentially this entire island and then shares the gospel with them. It's not in the text, but you, I mean, you know Paul. He shared it with him, right? He said, I'm not the god. Let me tell you about the god of the universe who gives me this power. Crazy story. Okay, let me ask a question. Why is Luke, the writer of Acts, giving us so much detail about this story? If you read it, you're going to dig into some like nautical themes that are crazy. It's going to feel like you're reading Moby Dick. Like it's, a, it's kind of a, a, a very detailed story. What is Luke doing? Why is he giving us so much detail? I think this is what Luke wants you to see, is that God will always follow through on his promises, even when it seems like he won't. God will always come through, even when it seems like he's abandoned you. 
Here's the promises that God made to Paul. Hey, Paul, you're going to make it to Rome safely, and you're going to preach the gospel there. And then immediately afterwards, this is what happened. Paul gets arrested. There's an assassination attempt on his life. He gets on a ship in the middle of winter and says, hey, guys, maybe we shouldn't sail on a boat in the middle of winter. And they're like, nah, we should go for it. And they sail in the middle of winter. They crash land on an island. As they're crash landed and stranded on an island, he gets bit by a snake. Okay, doesn't it seem like there's a discrepancy between the safety, the safe journey that God promised him towards Rome and what's actually happening in his life? Where are you feeling that discrepancy in your life? What are the things that God has promised you that you feel like aren't coming true? Right, Jesus has promised that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you feel that? Or do you feel exhausted? He's promised you purpose and meaning and significance as he fills you up with his presence. When you're driving to work on Monday, is that what you feel like? He's going, oh, I just can't wait to get to work. This is amazing. Maybe some of you are. Most of you are feeling like, I don't know what the point of this is. He's promised the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. When Graham is screaming at me at 2 in the morning, I do not feel patient. I do not feel kind. Some of you feel like you're on that boat. Right, And this is your Christian life, is you're not thriving, you're not missional, you're just trying to stay alive. Like you're just trying to keep your head above water, and it seems like God has bailed on his promises. And what it means to be a Christian is to live in the tension between what God has promised you and what seems to be the reality around you, and to believe. The primary work that we have as Christians is to believe even when we don't understand. But there's a tendency that can cause doubt in us. And the tendency is to believe what we see instead of believing what God sees. But I want you to look back at this story, right? If Paul was caught up in his circumstances, the way we tend to get caught up in his circumstances, what would he have concluded when he was in the middle of that storm? He would have concluded that he was about to die and that God was abandoning him. He would have panicked and freaked out, but actually what was he doing? He was calm because he believed that God would rescue him again the way that God had always come through for him. And look at what God does in the story. Is not only do they not die, but he safely brings every single person on that boat to shore. He brings them to shore with people who are friendly to them and provide for their needs. He gets bitten by a viper and doesn't die, and that provides an opportunity for him to testify to the power of God. And everybody on this ship sees the power of God declared, and Paul gets the opportunity to share the gospel with them, and I think some of them believed. And not only that, but these people in the middle of the ocean who are in desperate need of healing have Paul wash up on shore and heal them. God, I think, specifically sought those people out to bring Paul to them, to not only heal them, but share the gospel with them. And Paul would have had no idea about what was going on behind the scenes, but he believed and he trusted and God came through. Maybe God wants to allow you to live in the storm so that he can demonstrate to you that he's more powerful than the wind and the waves. Maybe the thing you need most in life is not for your circumstances to be changed, but your perspective to be changed. For your dependence to be on him and his promises and not your hope of safety and security or what you think is best for you. 
So a lot of you guys know we're, we're working on planting another salt company at the University of St. Thomas next year, another college ministry. And honestly, it's been a little tough. The whole private school thing is like a different ballgame than the public university. And one of the things that's been tough is they have a, a policy that was in place before we got there that just says, hey, we don't want two student groups that are too similar. And one of the difficulties we bumped into is that there's other like ministries on campus that we are different than, but that, that appear, appear fairly similar to us. And so I got a, a, a text uh, while I was writing this sermon that said that we're not able to become a student group at St. Thomas next year. And honestly, my first reaction was discouragement and frustration and playing the what-if game. Like, what does that mean for us? How are we going to get this done? What, what's that going to look like trying to impact the campus? And then I feel like God tapped me on the shoulder and was like, hey, dude, uh, remember what you're teaching on this Sunday? Are you going to believe? What, what did you just, like, if I can take care of the Apostle Paul through a shipwreck and a snake bite and Roman persecution and religious persecution, don't you think, like, I got this St. Thomas thing handled? And he just, I felt like he, the Spirit was just saying, are you going to actually live what you're teaching? And so we ended up that night uh, going and praying at St. Thomas. And when I saw Drew, he chest bumped me because we do that sometimes. And he was just pumped because he's weird like that and gets excited about hard things. But here's why it's like, dude, why do you do that? He's like, because every time I've seen something hard in my life or in scripture, I've always seen God come through. And this is just one more opportunity for him to take care of us. There will be a day when we're sitting around somewhere telling stories about the St. Thomas students that came to Christ and we'll laugh about this moment. We'll laugh about the stress and the anxiety about not really knowing what's going to happen because God will come through. It might not look exactly the way we wanted him to, but he will come through because that's what God does. The essential part of the Christian life is hoping when it seems like there's no hope because God loves to come through in those moments. And so why is Luke so meticulous about the details of the story? I want to come back to this. Why is he so insistent on proving that Paul gets to Rome safely? Well, I think it goes back to the theme, kind of the theme verse of Acts, the purpose statement of Acts that Jesus gave us. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You don't got to flip there, but I'll read it to you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What was true about Rome at this point? Rome was essentially the empire at this time. Right, to reach Rome was to reach the entire world. It was, it was the centerpiece of, of culture and religious life and government. Right? And so the second that Paul walked into the city of Rome and began to proclaim the gospel, Acts 1.8 was fulfilled, that the gospel reached the ends of the earth. And so this is what Jesus did, is that Jesus stood in front of this hodgepodge group of people, right? some IRS agents, some fishermen, some sexually immoral people, some people who had abandoned him, and he said, I will change the world through you. And it seemed like an insane idea. And then what did he do? He did it. He accomplished it. Why? Because you can't stop the gospel. Because in the gospel, the power of God is unleashed into the world. And you see the world transformed in front of your eyes. 
It's like a tidal wave that's slowly rising and eventually will wash over the entire earth. And any opposition to the gospel that seems big, right? Our, our secular culture or sin and doubt and death or, or Satan himself, that opposition is like a, a child standing in front of a tidal wave with an umbrella trying to stop it. It doesn't do a thing. It just washes over it. That's what the gospel does. And that tidal wave has come all the way down throughout history from, from the Apostle Paul to the early church fathers to the, the reformers to the, the Puritans down to us. And it's washed its way down to us, and we've been a part of the promises of God being fulfilled. And, and God didn't just make promises to the Apostle Paul, he made promises to you. What are the promises that he made to you? That you're fearfully and wonderfully made, and that he will use you as a part of, your king, of his kingdom. That he sealed you with his Holy Spirit, so that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Height nor depth, nothing can separate you from the love of God. He said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And those promises are so secure in Christ that they're like they've already been fulfilled. He answers the promises that he's made to you the same way that he answers the promises that he made to Paul. But here's the thing, and I've struggled with this a lot in my life. A lot of us live... Like, that's not true. We live insecure, faithless, kind of weak lives, anxious lives, where we're nervous about what's going to happen. Did you guys watch the Kentucky Derby a couple weeks ago? So Kentucky Derby, uh, world's most important horse race, right? And something weird went down is the horse that crossed the finish line first didn't actually end up winning because there was a review and he went out of his lane or whatever. I don't know anything about horse racing. It's funny how many hot takes people have on whether this was right or wrong. It's like you've watched two horse races in your life. You don't know what you're talking about. But um, so he goes out of his lane or like does whatever is illegal. And, and there's this, this time period of like 20 minutes where they're agonizingly reviewing this race, and they keep showing the jockey that, in theory, won, and he's super anxious. Like, almost immediately after he crosses the finish line, I think he knew because he wasn't really celebrating. And he's nervous, and he's anxious, and he's, like, watching for the results, and he's waiting. Why? Because the results of the race were in question. Right, That is not the response of someone who just won the Kentucky Derby with millions of dollars on the line. What should he have been doing? Celebrating and hugging his family and, and grabbing the roses or like whatever it is and, 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 and just going crazy because he just won the Kentucky Derby. But what's he doing? He's standing there in anxiety. Why? Because the results hadn't come in yet. The victory was insecure. Some of you live as if the results on your life and the world aren't in yet. And you're, you're anxious and, and you're insecure and, and you're nervous. And, and, and when people see you, that's kind of the predominant thing that you project to them. But what does that demonstrate about God that he hasn't really won? But I've got news for you is that Jesus already won. That the promises that he's made to you are so secure in him that there's, it's like they're already completed. Which means that you can live life like you just won the Kentucky Derby. You can live a celebratory, confident, faith-filled life, regardless of your circumstances, not because you're awesome, because Jesus is awesome, and he will come through for you. 
And when you live like that, you demonstrate the reality that Jesus is strong even when you're weak and that he'll fulfill your promises. Live a joy-filled, celebratory life because you have the perspective that Jesus wins. Okay, I want to give you a second reason why I think Luke finishes the book of Acts the way that he does. I said it's, it's a fulfillment of Acts 1.8, which I think that's true, but I think there's also a second reason. Let me look at the very end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verses 30 through 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. All right, that's a fine ending. That's nice. But doesn't that seem a little anticlimactic? Like, think about everything that's happened in the book of Acts. There's been resurrections. There's been mass conversions. There's been the Holy Spirit descending in fire on the apostles. And then this is how Luke, this great storyteller, concludes the book. Yeah, so Paul, like, he got to Rome, and, and he did what he usually does. He, he talked about Jesus. And it's like, that's great, but it seems anticlimactic. Why? Well, I think this is the reason is because it's a dot, dot, dot. It's a to-be-continued. This was Acts part one. Part two is still coming. And who is living out part two of the book of Acts? It's you. We called this series the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still around and he's still working in his people. He's working in you. And so here's the second perspective that's true is that the story is not over. It just ended, the, the, the story on paper just ended in Acts chapter 28. We are living Acts chapter 29. We're a part of this story. So I want to tell you a few stories from, from the life of our church. So we, uh, we have student leaders for Salt Company, uh, which if you're not familiar with Salt Company, that's like the heartbeat of what we do. Is, is we as a staff essentially set our student leaders up to do ministry. And we got to, to sit in this circle last Sunday with our student leaders. And we looked around and every single one of them was a brand new leader this year. Which honestly should have been a train wreck. Uh, I love you student leader, but you don't know what you're doing the first year, right? And, and you know that. And, and it should not have worked. But I'm sitting around looking at these leaders and they, they carried this thing. Like Salt Company progressed, not regressed, and we, we asked a simple question, how did you see God change people this year? And they started bouncing around that circle, one person after another, telling stories about how people came to Christ this year. One of our student leaders, Thomas Wong, who I'm super proud of, um, who would say at the beginning of the year, he, he was a Christian, but kind of barely, <laughs> you know, not really wanting to, to follow the commands of Jesus, and his entire life has been flipped upside down this year. And not only that, but from the place that Thomas was in, he started talking about four guys in his group that he was really encouraged by. And I was like, Thomas, didn't at least three out of those four guys come to know Jesus this year? And he was like, yeah, you're right. That's wild. Right, there's pastors who pastor churches for years that don't see stuff like that. And Thomas, in his first year of leadership, kind of figuring out how to follow Jesus, saw at least three people come to Christ in his group, probably more. That's the type of stuff that God does. Baptism, worship, potluck. Enough said? Right? If you were there, you understand. 
There was 400 people that came out to watch 30 people get baptized, and I'm sitting there hearing these stories of life after life after life being changed with the same basic testimony, coming from different perspectives, but the same basic testimony is I was lost in life, and then Jesus pursued me, and he saved me, and my entire life is different. And one of the things I love most about baptisms is not only people getting baptized, but the people baptizing them. Because for every person getting baptized, there's almost always someone new baptizing them, which is an illustration of those people who have been so influential in their lives. We had a connection group who, there was a neighbor who posted on like some neighborhood posts who just said, I really need help with my house. And she was an older lady that, that over time had become almost like a hoarder. And this connection group, who didn't really know this lady very well, just took a day and went and cleaned her house and helped her organize it. And they knew probably nothing was going to come of that, quote unquote, from she probably wasn't going to come to Salt City. They probably weren't going to have continued relationship with her, but they just served. There's crazy stuff. Like Aaron Youngberg is in my connection group. If you guys know him, Aaron plays a lot of video games. And, and it's fine. God, God's, you know, God's using it. And so... So this is how God used it. This was wild. So Aaron has been playing video games with this same guy. And uh, apparently you can like now wear headsets and like talk to people as you're playing video games online. And so he's been playing video games with this same guy in Indiana for like, I think years. And they became such close friends that this guy from Indiana and his girlfriend or his wife, I forget, came and visited Aaron and Kim for a weekend. And it was the first time they had ever met. And they, they showed up and they visited and they actually came to Salt City. No, essentially no Christian background, not Christians. And we talked about prayer that day. And he had just found out, this guy had just found out that his parents were about to split up. And so he went home and he prayed, hey God, if you exist, would you please keep my parents together? And then that night his mom called him and said, hey, I think we're going to stay together. And now he's considering Christianity. Only God, like a video game to some guy in Indiana, right? Okay, why am I telling you these stories? So that you believe. Like it's, it's easy to look at our lives and look at the book of Acts and say, why are these things kind of not happening? And I think there's some legitimacy to that question of from our Western perspective, we tend to not see the miraculous, but I'm like, what? They are happening, if you wrote a story about our church, it would be like the book of Acts because the Spirit of God is still moving. We believe. We believe that the Spirit of God is still moving and that he's got something to say in this world. We believe that the secular narrative, that, that God is dead and that religion is dead, that that narrative is crumbling. We believe that people are seeing Jesus who's alive and well and doing something in the world and that they want to be a part of it. And, and look, we try and speak the gospel every message, right? Because it's that central and that important. But the gospel is not just that your sins are forgiven. The gospel is that you are now a powerful creature in him. That Jesus sends his spirit to live in you and to transform your life so that you can be a part of his kingdom work moving forward. That that is true of you. That if the future heavenly you that you're slowly becoming were to walk through those back doors, we would all fall on our faces and be tempted to worship because you're that glorious in him. We talk about sin a lot, and rightfully so, because the Bible does, but the Bible also talks about this new, beautiful creation that you've become in the Spirit. And so what that means is, is that insignificance is not the end of your story. 
It's not the end of your story. In fact, death is not even the end of your story. That's our third perspective is that death is just the beginning. And you saw this in the life of the Apostle Paul who lived this crazy, bold life. And it was largely because of his perspective that this life was not all there is. And it enabled him to say crazy things like to live as Christ and to die is gain. Or death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's taunting death. Who does that? Someone who knows that death is not the end, but just the beginning. Here's what's true of you. If you are in Christ, you are, eternal, you are an eternal being looking forward to an eternal hope of life with God. Which means that your current life on earth is like point zero 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 a lot of zeros, 1% of your actual life. But here's what we do, is instead of focusing on that 99.9999% of eternity that we'll spend with Jesus, we focus on this tiny percentage of this life. And so we lose focus on what we should be living for. We lose perspective. This is what that's like. It's like when you look at a picture on your phone and you zoom all the way in and it starts to get pixelated, right? And you can't see what the picture is. So what do you need to do? You need to zoom out and the picture starts to become clear. It starts to come into focus. When you zoom out on your life from being so obsessed with everything that's going on in your life now and the way you want to live now, and you zoom out and you see your life from a heavenly perspective, it will actually bring your life into clear focus. And here's what Jesus does. Here's the hope that he offers you that starts to bring you perspective. Is that Jesus turns your gravestone into a birth certificate that death is not the end, you will wake up to new life. And here's what that means, is that you don't have to try and build heaven on, on earth for yourself right now. You don't have to be overwhelmed by suffering because they're incredibly temporary. In a million years, you won't even remember them. You don't have to live for your own name on this earth because you'll be with Jesus forever and his name is worth living for. It gives you focus in your life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a guy with some pretty incredible focus. He lived during World War II and led like an underground seminary to try and keep, he was a German and tried to keep essentially the church in live, a church alive in Germany during World War II and ended up in a conspiracy plot against Hitler. And he was, he was fighting for the truth of Christianity. What gave him that type of focus that he was willing to eventually give up his life for the sake of the gospel? Listen to this quote from Bonhoeffer. Death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. Changing your perspective changes your purpose. You know where the worst place to look at a waterfall is? When you're standing on top of the waterfall. I learned that the hard way. First time I ever went to a waterfall, I didn't pay attention to the bottom, sprinted to the top, climbed up all the way to the top, was gassed, and got up there and went, what is this? Because what can you see from the top? A little river and an edge, and that's it. You can't actually see the waterfall. You can hear like the sound of the water. You can see the edge. You can see the river as it falls off, but you can't actually see the waterfall. But does that mean that the waterfall doesn't exist? No. It's equally there for you as you're standing up top as it is for a person at the bottom that can behold the kind of the beauty and the wonder of the waterfall. It's equally there. It's just that you can't see it. And I think that's a lot of what the Christian life is like. 
if God is that waterfall, he's beautiful and powerful and majestic and he's moving throughout the world, this life is like standing on top of the waterfall. You get little signs of it. You can see the river. You can hear the noise, but you can't fully see it. And living as a Christian is standing at the top of the waterfall and choosing to believe that it still exists even though you don't have the perspective to see it. And then entering the next life is you closing your eyes here and Jesus opening your eyes with a new perspective and letting you finally see. And you will finally see him. You'll see his beauty, you'll see his majesty, you'll see his power, and you'll see what he had been doing in your life the whole time. And so right now we live and we focus on that future reality. We have the perspective of that future reality and it hones in the focus with which we live our lives now. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that this world isn't everything that there is. Thank you that there's hope beyond this life and that living with a direction towards that day can give us new life and new vitality and new hope now. And so, God, it's kind of an intangible thing. It's kind of a hard thing to think about how living life with a different perspective would, would actually tangibly change the way we live. But I, I see it in the Apostle Paul. I've seen you do that in my life. I'm convinced that's true. So help us to be a church that isn't consumed with stuff right now but lives for eternity. And would that add focus and meaning and purpose to our lives now? And would people be, people outside of this church be intrigued by what we have and the hope that we have? In Jesus' name, amen.